The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Breaking a Baseball News Podcast here on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. I'm Tim Jackson, T.C. Zenka is on a well-earned respite. So here with me, in the meantime, is Lance Brozdowski of Marquee Sports. You might have known him in the past from Razball, from Baseball Prospectus. Uh, you've done some work with Driveline as well, some video work as well, right? Uh, so Lance, how are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, spring is kind of getting here in Chicago, so I'm, I'm excited to go for some walks around Wrigley again. I live pretty close to the stadium. Been, been a pretty good season so far. I'm, I'm really excited to do this. I actually haven't done a podcast in a very long time. After doing them religiously with Ralph Lifshitz of Razball for, man, for maybe two years, we did a podcast every single week. I can't say, I can't remember the last time I was on a podcast. I'm very excited for this. It, we will remember right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so our, our big idea this week as we move right into it comes on the heels of the, the Angels DFAing Albert Pujols. And that really got us thinking in a couple of different directions. Uh, the team said they wanted to get Jared Walsh some regular at-bats, and it's hard to fault them. Walsh, as a 27-year-old, is a, a late breakout guy. He's got a 165 WRC+. Plus. It's 12th in baseball, more than double the rate that Pujols has, uh, has put up this year and really for a long time. Uh, so that's a fair reason for the Angels. But Lance, this news comes across your screen. How do you react to, to Albert Pujols? getting DFA'd. I was really shocked when I first saw this. And I, I maybe this was exacerbated a little bit by, I think it was Jeff Passan saying like quote tweeting and being like, wow, I never thought I'd see this. So that kind of like was like, oh, I should definitely feel that way. Cause someone who knows a little more than me about this is, <laughs> is reacting in this direction. But man, I, it's funny. We're talking about this cause I grew up a Cardinals fan. So I have a, a deep attachment to Bulls. He's my favorite player. He, one who made me obsessed with baseball when I was a when I was a young kid and stuff. So I do have a bit of attachment here. I was devastated. I actually hated him. I remember for about a year when he went <laughs> to the Angels because I like was irrational and thinking that every player should be loyal to the team that I loved when I was a kid. Um, but I obviously have come around on that and I just love him as a player and what he contributed to the Cardinals organization. And it's hilarious now that I work for the Cubs network. So as you can tell, my <laughs> fandom is all over the place and very, very confusing. I, I don't even think I understand it, but my reaction to this news was very, I was shocked. Like I, was really surprised to see this mainly because I just, we know it's the sunlight, the, the excuse me, the, the sun is setting on Pujols' career. And I was convinced that he would just ride it out with this organization. And I'm, I'm shocked. I think I'm even more shocked that like, 
Trout didn't have the ability to potentially convince him to stay because I know they're close. Like I'm, I'm very surprised that the organization just didn't retain him. And I get it from the competitive standpoint, but the layer that I don't understand is in what in Albert Pujols' mind is this, this is harsh, but what in Albert Pujols' mind actually makes him think that he could play first base or be a regular major leaguer <laughs> like on another organization. He's yeah. going to be sectioned off to the AL. So that cuts the team sample in half as to where he can go. He's not going to be with the angels. I imagine there's another 11 to 12 teams that you immediately can X off based on who they have depth wise. So you're waiting on like an injury, like the white Sox reading sounds fun, but in reality, like it just doesn't make any sense in my mind. I yeah, just Russo not... said it, right. He said there's, unfortunately there's no fit here. Yeah. And I think that's the answer every team is going to give. So like, my conspiracy brain kicks on and goes like, is that really the reason why he left? Like what else in here are we missing? And I, I really don't know. I'm not sure if you have a take on why he could have maybe left that isn't in line with what we've heard. Well, so is, is, is the thing that you just, you don't think that it was just the angels wanting to give Walsh more playing time that they were like, well, let's just turn the page here. Do you think there was something more there or, or just in terms of, of him it, as a guy, as a, as a figure? Yeah, I think it's the figure nature of it and the fact that, like, I like he, he, this has been kind of the case for a bit, you know, like a little bit last year with Walsh playing a pretty good amount. I'm just, yeah. I don't, I don't want to speculate in a direction that I don't have any information on, but it just, it just seems almost shocking to me. You know, there's one side of this maybe that's weighted more. Maybe things are just like, we're moving on and Pulse is like, no, I actually really want to play. Like, I'd love to just chill here and be like a 12 AB a week guy. You know what I mean? And yeah. Like, no, we're moving on. And then the message to the public is, you know, we'll move on together and make you it know, a little bit more amenable. That's interesting because he does have a 10-year personal services contract attached to them, right? Yeah, and yeah. Mm -hmm. It's weird to say that you're going to commit to the, the personal services contract, which is basically like he gets to go and be a roving instructor wherever for however long at whatever point in the year. It's kind of just like a loosey-goosey, yep. thanks for being around, Let's let's keep you around, we value you type of thing. Um, but it's weird to hand that out, which th he got with the contract that he signed a decade ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's weird to have that component of it while also saying, no, we don't want you to be a 12A, be a guy week. We just, we want the space, Albert. <laughs> it's harsh. It's really harsh. And like, I, it could just be a reality of like, I, there's always that, that athlete speak of like, no one's ever accepting of when they deteriorate to the point where they can't play anymore. Like sure. you, just, you just reject that. You know, obviously like, never experienced that, but like I imagine that happens <laughs> with a variety of people. And like, is he really just that in it? Like the guys have been able to run for 40 years. You know what I mean? Like, right. I understand that like he was maybe moderately productive that second year after he came to the Angels, I think. But man, I just, it just is so, it's so perplexing to me. And I just, I really don't understand where you could go to play. I think that's my, my major like why. You know, that's what I come back to. It's like you, you have to assume some resolution and me thinking of what the resolution could be. I'm completely at a loss as to where he could end up. And and the Angels, to them, it, it appears as though their resolution was, this is it. Yeah. If you're not playing again, we're sorry. We we really appreciate what you've done, but this is it. We have yeah. Jared Walsh now. Yeah, and I guess the funny thing, too, we can think of this in another direction. Like the Angels, I believe, are still last place in the West right now um, or second to last compared to the Mariners. You can fact check me on that if you um, – yeah, I see you're doing that right now. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but it's funny because it's like, I, I like that the organization can build this as like, you know, we need to win. Like we're trying to win now. So like us cutting pool holes, that's going to help us win now. And it's like, is that, 
really going to help you win now? Like, well, so you're, you're right. I first know. of all, they are, they are 15 and 18 coming into play here. We're recording uh, on Monday night, the 10th of May. And uh, so you all, by the time you hear this, it's, it's a couple days. The standings might change. But as of now, they are 15 and 18. They're four and a half back in the AOS. They are a game and a half back of the Rangers, who were kind of shaped up to be nothing this year, mm-hmm. uh, which is maybe a, a culmination of their work and their players, but also the Angels. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess saying they want to compete now is really kind of interesting because they've got the talent and things just haven't really worked out for them. They've Pitching-wise, for forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you mentioned Pujols in terms of saying, you know, we – we can do this without you. In fact, it might be better if we do. He has been a negative war guy the last four plus years. Uh, so, I mean, maybe he would have turned it around in a full season in 2020, but given what he had done recently in the, in the last two, three years before that, I don't know. Um, he is a negative, what, 1.2? No, wait, sorry. Uh, this is not a numbers podcast. There's no math allowed, and I'm trying to do it. Uh, like a negative four win player? over the last few years. And yeah, I guess as a player, like, look, we really value your contributions and what you could do for people. And like, we're sorry, this might make Mike Trout cry, but we have other directions we can go. I know. And I, I it's, it's tough. Cause like, I guess I'm playing a little bit of a pessimistic side here, but I often enjoy the idea of organizations saying we want to compete now and then not actually acting in a way that supports that. And like, I understand that like internally, maybe they have different understandings of like, you know, they have other variables they have to weigh, whether it be cost, whether it be yeah. a variety of other things. But like, if they were truly on that path, like I find it relatively shocking that they wouldn't then immediately call up a player like Adele or Marsh, um, who are both in their minor league system. I imagine both from the cusp of being very close to ready. Adele's already yeah. had major league at bats. Um, they were not great. I think the strikeout was really high with him. Marsh, we have not seen. I imagine that the Angels have an idea of where he is progressive wise, progression wise. Um, and I Dexter Fowler goes down with the ACL tear, which is brutal. I don't even have any idea. The right field depth chart says it's Juan Lagar, Jared Walsh, Taylor Ward, John Jay. If this Pujols DFA was to get Jared Walsh ABs, who's playing the outfield for them aside from Trout and Upton? And Upton's been uh, really has missed, bad. I think, multiple games this year already with a variety of nagging injuries. Yeah. So like again, like I get they're trying to compete, but like, are they actually acting in a way that says we are competing? And that's... I'm I'm a little skeptical that that's true right now. If they're not, like, that's... They, look at the Royals. The Royals like called Daniel Lynch <laughs> and like yep. they are put Bobby Witt in Double A and like we're on the cusp potentially of promoting him off the start of the season, which may have been a little bit of media buzz, but whatever. But like that team seems to be actually acting in a way that makes it correlate with them wanting to compete. And I, it, I guess I don't see that with the Angels, which makes me like raise an eyebrow on this on this DFA. It does, and it's interesting. So you're you're, you're bringing up a couple of things that we TC and I have spoken about recently in, in the past. Uh, one, the Royals' aggression when like they are kind of in it, they go for it, which good for them. Not a lot of teams do that league wide. Uh, and two, uh, ultimately. Uh, winning looks like different things to different clubs and orgs, right? And and we talked about it. We framed it around Cleveland. Cleveland is a team that will be perfectly content to call an 82-80 an you know, season a big win because they don't care about the playoffs as, yep. as far as an ownership goes, ownership group goes, right? So that's kind of interesting. I wanna, I'm going to have to now tune in to the Angels to see how they continue to shape those things. Um, 
for as much as we talked about Pujols being bad the last four plus seasons, he is still for his career at a WRC plus of 142. So two things here. One, not many guys can be bad for a quarter of their career like this and still have a rate that good overall. And two, not many guys can call five years a quarter of their career, right? So mm-hmm. we talked about this even just before we, we press record. Pujols is really kind of forcing us to think about baseball on a macro level, right? Because he's a great player. Like we're, We witness greatness. If you watched Albert Pujols play in the last 20 years, well, 15 years minus mm-hmm. the last five, you watched greatness. So uh, what is it to watch greatness, Lance? Like, uh, What do we make of a, a career like Albert Pujols coming to this kind of weird, sudden, even if expected, halt? Yeah, it almost makes me... Man, there's so many thoughts on this. And I said pre-pod that I was not going to say the word I don't know because that's <laughs> that's really what... I, it's the answer, but I'm going I'm to refrain as hard as I can from saying that. I think... When you see a deterioration so sharp at the end of a great career, it honestly makes me rethink longevity and how important that is. And I don't know if I want to bring up this player in particular, just because I know it's going to set off people in a variety of directions, but like Derek Jeter is, (laughs) has longevity that supersedes the majority of players in major league history. And that's why one of the main reasons in my opinion, why he's great. And when you see a tail off so hard, at the end of a career like Pujols's, it really makes me like contextualize and understand how important it is and how, how many different ways you can achieve greatness, whether it be in the Kofax style, relatively small sample of absolute dominance or the Jeter style of longevity, which he was really good at. But, you know, early on, he had some peak, peak seasons, I believe, in terms of his career. But then, like, I don't think he posted too many amazing seasons later in his career. And I, I think that those two channels towards greatness is really what I think of. Cause like we see a lot of the time with present players and I'm thinking of Joey Votto, I'm thinking of a Yadier Molina, maybe a Bumgarner where you get that question asked, is this guy a hall of famer, which is, I guess, one measure of saying whether the player is great. Um, and it's almost like the response is continually. Well, he could be with X amount of years, of a hot streak or if he has another jump later in his career he can be you know and it's like i think we undervalue how difficult that is to do how truly hard it is for someone above the age of 34 to succeed at a level compared to players who are in their mid to late 20s in peak physical shape who have developed at younger ages with tools that probably don't compare to what Paul has developed with at a younger age when he was in the Cardinal system as a third baseman. It's so funny that you mentioned the tools. I'm going to interrupt for just a second. Yeah, I'm sorry, because I just had this memory of being uh, like 10 in like the sporting goods store in South Jersey and seeing the, uh, the Albert Pujols batting practice bat. It was like a, it was like a weird Funko design. Totally. Um, and, and it was just like, yeah, I, so I don't think they're going to market this anymore ever again in, <laughs> in this year or ever again after that. It's true. No, it's true. It's just, I just, yeah, it makes me really appreciate what he did. You know, it makes me look back at that three homework game in Texas. And I don't remember what year this was off the top of my head. I apologize for that. But that was like, arguably just an incredible moment, I think in his career, one that jumps to mind for me, aside from the World Series, obviously, which is the number one. 
but um, and the variety of MVPs he won, et cetera. You could, you could, there's a variety of elements here that I think <laughs> in, in one way tell us how great he was, but those moments jump out to me as like, man, he was so good in those short periods of time yeah. and also an extended blend of his career. He was an incredible player. And it just, it really makes me introspect on what I think is great when I see a deterioration this hard. And it's like, how much do I discount what the player was if he's trying to push through in physical shape that is not anywhere near the current level of competition in Major League Baseball. And yet he's still, he was still already at five, six home runs this year before. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to me. You this know? kind of guy, he seems to run into, run into pitches. Like there's always, like Albert Pujols, maybe that's part of why he thinks he can play because he ran into five pitches, six pitches this yeah. year, right? Um, and just put him out. And that's, that's what Albert Pujols does. Albert Pujols thinks that yeah, it's home runs. Uh, you know, you mentioned a lot of guys that are really interesting in terms of Votto, Molina, Bumgarner. Uh, Bumgarner and Votto seem to be in reinventing themselves a little bit uh, mm-hmm. after the last couple of years where we could really reasonably question what their skill set had become, what it had sunk to. Uh, Molina is a really interesting guy to me because I was just looking this up this afternoon for a piece that will be out at BP tomorrow. So by the time anybody hears this, it will be two days in the future because we're all time travelers here. Um Molina has changed. He's he tweaks way more than I realized. Maybe you realize this watching him uh, as as you grew up, but he's changed his stance each of the last three years, um, and and it's really kind of adapted the way that maybe his muscles are setting or relaxing pre pitch to fire more efficiently, and he's at his best uh, DRC plus so the the BP version of WRC plus in years. Like he's at a, like a one fourteen. Uh, so which that's really interesting to me. Yeah, it's it's really odd. I mean, I'm looking at some of the data on him right now. You have the max exit velocity jump for him is the highest since it's the highest of his career. Actually, that's hilarious. Yeah, um, it's just like odd things like that, which again it gets back to a ball the ball conversation, which I know mm-hmm. you guys are, you and TC have already had. So definitely yeah. reference back to that podcast on that. Um, and I won't get into that here, but yeah, it's just it's 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 fascinating to me, you know, because like I think that this maybe segues well into another conversation which we're going to have here about what is present greatness and how hard is it going to be to compare future greatness to what we've already seen in terms of greatness? Because the days of catching 160 games are gone. The days of catching 140 games are probably gone. You know, like so many teams are running 90 to, you know, 72 platoons out there, you know, or 162. The Cubs are kind of... That's just on the catching side. Yeah, the Cubs are kind of on the, the, I guess the opposite end of that with Contreras right what Contreras does is kind of weird it's it's not founded in in throughout a lot of the game right now exactly and it's just it's tough because I I admit that my lack of historical base knowledge just baseball knowledge is probably not up to par with a variety of people and I think that's like one of the weaknesses of my fandom I guess as a whole excuse me here um and I just it's tough because I I love the game as a whole and it's difficult for me sometimes to contextualize what has happened you know like the Ripken uh record of games played because consecutively and the uh, just any like there's so many records that like yeah. we're just never going to be broken like, we love that idea of saying like what is the most unbreakable record like what if the answer to that this whole time has just been the majority of them are probably unbreakable <laughs> because of how the game has changed you know and it's so yeah. hard because it's like it's so easy to just be like man look at this guy who was 40 40 back in 1985 or whatever you know what i mean or let's say like 30 30 or 2020 
And it's like, great, look at that cost ceiling rate. And he was like basically 50%, he's flipping a coin and the organization just to let him keep running. That's not gonna happen again. Nope. So like when we look at the raw stats of a player like that who say hit 270 with, we'll say 30-30, who went 30-30 with a 50% success rate on stolen bases, that just doesn't, it's not gonna occur. Like I, I would be absolutely baffled if that occurs in the next five years based on what we understand about where that break-even point is on cold cost stealing. And it's stuff like that that just makes me like really try to understand and like try to communicate how great some of the current players we're seeing are compared to like what we have seen. And this I think is most acutely recognized in pitchers where we've obviously seen a massive dip in innings. There won't be anyone who wins 300 games. There may not be anyone that wins 220. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's so different. And it's like, I get that that standard of, whatever baseline stat you want to use is so high, but that is changing. And like, maybe the batting stuff is something that could sustain, like maybe the 400 hitter, we maybe won't necessarily see, but it's funny how much, like I almost feel like Pujols' career to some extent, and a lot of hitters in particular can be appreciated almost across generations. Like, I don't think there's a point at which Pujols' career is going to become like what I'm saying about some of these guys who just had absurd rate stats that, now would be frowned upon, you know, 250 innings, 40 caught stealing with, or, you know, anything in that realm of just like, this just wouldn't occur now. So like, do we then dampen the appreciation for that as it occurred? Do we like take it in the context of the era and are comfortable with it occurring, even though now it's kind of viewed upon negatively? Like that is hard for me to understand in the present moment, I think. I, I know think, I rambled for a lot there. But no, that, that's okay. You're, that you're, you're hitting on a lot, and I think it's all relevant because um, even in the Pitcherless Discord, we were recently having a discussion on what it is to talk to fans who are generally older, who uh, who say, who don't care for new stats, when really it, the conversation is the same, and it's it's all about this recalibrating. And uh, you, know, you think of guys with, with these rate stats, like I don't think we'll ever see, like you're saying, a, a base stealer who's that bad at stealing bases getting 20 30 bags getting 10 bags because those guys are just down every year steel opportunities are down year after year especially so far through 2021 and what what it seems you're really speaking to is that baseball has leaned into such an efficiency that it isn't efficient to to keep letting a guy create outs trying to steal bags it isn't efficient to let guys throw uh seven eight innings every time it's not efficient to have them throw 130 pitches every game and I think what we wrestle with in terms of defining greatness and when it comes to, like you're saying, kind of associating greatness here with the Hall because Pujols, he's a lock. It doesn't matter what the last five years were. He's a lock. The voters are going to have to recalibrate at some point. And I wonder when this happens because the voters are almost kind of like 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 a final destination because there are younger fans, even though MLB might seem to refuse them at certain points. Um, But they aren't necessarily younger writers who are, Hall of Fame voters. Mm-hmm. And I wonder when for that sure. change happens. I wonder how long it takes for uh, a younger generation to appreciate these things, but for those those people to be in a position to vote, to formally declare greatness and, and recalibrating it. Um, I, I don't know. I, you also hit on something that was very interesting to me in regards to uh, seeing a, a certain guy do something really well, like maybe some of the batting average stuff comes through. Uh, Nick Madrigal is a pretty extreme case of batting average, right? He's like pure hit tool, no power, no nothing, but like he will take you 
down the opposite way on two strikes and not not care at all. He's like, all right, I'm on first base. Do something about it. It's hilarious you mentioned it. I was I was mulling in my head of like what current players could we be underappreciating for the greatness. And Madrigal came up 95% contact rate, which I was searching back through qualified hitters of the last 10 years and could not find one that was higher. It honestly made me appreciate Michael Brantley a little more because he was consistently oh, around yeah. 90 with power, which is the Brantley. element of this that like we love Soto for too, right? Is the contact rate and the plate approach with the power and exit below yeah. and a variety of other things that predict success. And like Madrigal is just like, I'm going to give you 95% contact rate. Like it's, it's more likely that you'll see him like do all these things see like a variety of things. And the fact that like, he's just never going to miss a pitch is insane that he swings at. It's like, Ever. it's crazy. And it's like, it almost in looking at Madrigal's, how much of an outlier his, he has almost made me appreciate like a Mookie Betts more who is incredible at making contact in the zone and making quality contact in the zone, which is something that I don't think a lot of people understand about Mookie Betts. Like he is a God at that. And like Soto is becoming a God, but Mookie Betts has the track record of being a God in that. I think that's the difference when you say, like the Betts and the, when and you the say Soto. it's tough to make that quality contact, what do you mean? Like, what does that look like to you? Well, I think that this gets into maybe a little bit, my angle on it would be more mechanics based. And we're seeing this with like a guy like Randy or Rosarena, where I think a lot of that postseason boost for him was because of people throwing him high fastballs, high spin efficiency fastballs drop a little less than every hitter expects. But because his swing plane was so flat, he's actually able to have a little bit of an advantage. That attack angle of what the back's coming in as a little bit flatter for him than it is for other players. Generally, we see positive attacking. Those guys that swing up, like that old Ted Williams graphic of meeting the line of the ball generally is what is consistently viewed as like the best hitters in baseball do that. Every good hitter in baseball does that. And Rosarena was a little bit flatter, which is fascinating because he was still able to make extremely hard contact and hit home runs. So that element of rarity is something that we just don't see a lot of. So like to do what Madrigal is doing and look at that contact leaderboard, who else is there? Nikki Lopez, a lot of players who are not particularly good. And why are they not particularly good? Because they don't make quality contact. So like when you jump down to that like low 80s window, you start to see the elites. You start to see Acuna's up at 84% this year. You start to see Soto. You start to see, I think Tatis might be in there. I'm not 100% sure on that one. But it's funny how that like ebbs and flows. And at the peak of that contact leaderboard, it's just a lot of players who like are fun, but aren't particularly great. So like it's tough for Madrigal. Like is Madrigal great? He's great at making contact. <laughs> but does yeah. that make him a great player? I don't really know. You know, it's just, it's difficult to make really hard, solid contact with that flat of a bat angle or attack angle. It's, it's really just what it is. Well, that's, that's so. one of those things where, so this, this is interesting because I, as I started to think about this conversation in terms of what greatness is, how we might recalibrate it, I thought of it as individuals who are kind of the total package and individuals who have that one elite tool and Madrigal mm -hmm. has that one elite tool. I just don't know that we're ever going to get the shine on it. Like maybe we'll get a season or two where he really kind of pops and he hits like 13 homers and everybody's like holy crap have you seen nick madrigal lately but the guys behind like the, the one comparison that came up in a conversation i was having a couple of weeks ago was like oh who do you think has swung and missed less this year david fletcher another angel notorious for not missing when he swings or nick madrigal and it was madrigal because he'd only missed four pitches at that point like, how do you do that you could there are guys who could have four pitches thrown at their bat and they would still miss like uh -huh. it's just it's impossible to to be what Nick Madrigal is, but when it comes down to it, in twenty years, whatever his career looks like at that point, I don't know how much we're gonna talk about him outside of like, hey, remember Nick Madrigal? He never missed, <laughs> which is like fun, 
but I almost feel like the greatness argument is something that transcends a little bit, right? Yes. It transcends the layer of like, this is fun and cool for us nerdy baseball fans, but like, <laughs> is that really great? And it's funny because like, I'm, I'm refraining from saying, is that really valuable? Because I remember when Madrigal was coming up through prospect circles, did a lot of prospect stuff in the past, kind of moved away from that a little bit. I'd say there's more, people who are much more in touch with what's going on in the minor leagues than I am presently. But I remember when Madrigal was coming up through the minors and like, I started to get a better understanding of war and how war was structured, how player value was structured. And I looked at Madrigal and was like, so you're telling me that he's a good to plus defender with a good base running ability and crazy high average, which results a little bit in high OBP, which is always the issue with Billy Hamilton, who has the elite yeah. speed tool. Yep. And like, you're telling me that this guy's not a top 100 prospect? Like, he's going to have a baseline of a war to a year, no matter what. Will he ever peak above three? I couldn't tell you. But yeah. like, if I'm an organization, I'm looking at Nick Madrigal, like, I think I could find a spot for a guy who I'm pretty confident is going to land between like one and a half to two and a half four every single year. You know what I mean? Who has a lot of flexibility to sit different parts of the lineup, makes contact with everything. It's just, it's really interesting to me. And the funny question I want to ask you is a very direct one. Uh, over or under 0.5 home runs from Nick Madrigal this year. Does he hit a home run? He hasn't hit a home run since 2019. He hit. I was going to say, is, he hit one? I, is this a trick question? Um, he hit four that year, which was actually more than I thought, but he did not hit one in 2018 oh, across man. about 40 games. So it seems to be, if you give him about a sample of a hundred games, he gets a few, but the bad X, which is like a stack cast base projected by uh, Derek Cardi, I believe is giving him one, which I feel like maybe that's a 0.9 and it's rounding up, right? <laughs> <laughs> a rounding error home run. A rounding error home run. Um, no. The ball's down. We know that the ball yeah. is hurting the guys who have this level of contact more than it's hurting the Joey Gallows of the world, right? Yeah, but the, the idea the of like... 380 plus, not going to matter. Right. The, the idea of a guy who can hit a no downer doesn't matter if he loses three to five feet on a Correct. fly ball. It's out. But Nick it's Madrigal... It's going to matter for Madrigal. Yeah, he's not going to... That's, what, that's immediately what I thought of. Is the, the guys who get those kind of cheapy home runs who... When you watch a, a Phillies game in August at home that just creeps into the flower bed above the fence... That home run might not be there for a guy like Nick Madrigal this year. So, yeah. God, thinking of it as a rounding error, that's too it's perfect. So I just thought this was uh, really funny. I'd love to see that number. I might have to DM Cardi and be like, what's the <laughs> Is that 0. .6? Like, are you just yeah. rounding up it's 0.6? You know yeah, it's like 0. .55. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going to round up or down? Um, funny. I, I want to say yes because – I do too. I think I it think would I'd be fun like a Ben Revere homer, right? Like he just exactly. slaps it right out. Um, yeah. I'll say yes, but my head is telling me it, it really might not happen. I know. It's weird, right? Especially in this year. I think this year is the particularly odd one because of everything. Yeah. But, uh, it, you know, power ages, ages, excuse me, warms up as the, as the season warms up too. It so does? There's a chance. I feel like you just got to get him in an advantageous park. I'm not exactly sure. I imagine they go to Yankee Stadium at some point this year. Get a little slap on the other way or down the line or something. Maybe that's a shot. I imagine he goes to Houston, get him something in the Crawford boxes. You don't need to hit it that hard or that high or far. Like, he's got a shot. You know? we'll, see. we'll see. And probably too much Nick Madrigal talk for this. But, but I mean, that gets at another thing that I think I wanted to talk about a little bit, which is, like, I wonder, and I, I admit I have a little bit of bias here because I tend to go towards more some of the advanced ideas around, like, biomechanics and stuff. I really enjoy just trying to understand that, trying to understand. I, I emphasize trying to understand yeah. there. Sure. Um, and one of the players that I also thought that maybe we put in the, this hall of greatness that we're underappreciating is Araldish Chapman, which I understand the off-field stuff is something that is maybe not to the liking of a lot of people, which is going to limit how much you can actually say he is great. 
in a variety of people's eyes and probably my eyes as well. But from a biomechanics and stuff standpoint and velocity standpoint, I, I feel like there are very few precedents for what he's done in his career and how he's reinvented himself. And you can also translate this back to Jean-Carl Stan, I think, um, where if you look at his, I, I believe Sarah Lang's of ESPN, Lindsay Adler and a couple others do a great job of tracking this, how hard he has hit the ball every single year. He's one of the only players to hit over 120 miles per hour, an individual batting ball. And he yeah. does it every single year. He's consistently at the top of the leaderboard. He's consistently the player who hits the ball the hardest the most. And I understand that he's run into a variety of injuries um, both soft tissue and freak thinking back to the hit in the face and stuff, just a variety of elements of this. But I honestly think that it just makes him more great. The fact that he doesn't need a large sample to be able to confirm what we already know, which is that he hits the ball harder than anybody. And he is truly like, he, he stands out. And I understand that it's not this long-term greatness, which I mentioned back to Jeter, but in terms of like the uniqueness of Giancarlo Stan and what he does and the uniqueness of a player like, uh, or this Chapman, how he's able to throw and contort his body for his size, 6'6", 245, or excuse me, Stan, 6'6", 245, but I imagine Trapman's probably around there as well. Like that appreciation of greatness is something that I hope to some extent we normalize a little bit more, like the body movement greatness and maybe even like the pitch type greatness, these very granular topics. But going back to my point that I just mentioned, I have a lot of reservation that that'll ever transcend sport, which I do think is that level of greatness that, people start to realize when you say when you say transcend do you mean ultimately like the the older fan would love it the the person who doesn't know baseball knows what it is knows who it is exactly which then starts to really bucket things into like baseball nerd greatness and like greatness yeah yeah and i think those are two very different things because like i can appreciate the movements of your oldest chairman and understand that like we're probably never going to see someone who throws as hard as consistently as he does and how he contorts his body and He's, he's incredible. Like I understand we have a lot of players in the minor leagues that are throwing very hard that we don't know about yet. So this velocity is just going to keep ticking out, which I don't think a lot of people realize. We're not coming to a head to it anytime soon, I don't think. And like same with Giancarlo Stan. Like I think that he's on the fence of this, right? Because I think that a lot of people who see Giancarlo Stan are like, holy moly, like he almost hit 60 home runs one year in 2017 with the Marlins. He's done a lot. But like I do think that older fan would just say he's been injured too much to be great, right? Oh, yeah. Like, then the baseball nerd argument is like, I get that, but like there is no one who has hit the ball as hard as consistently as he has in his career relative yeah, to the league. That, that's, that's that like, is incredible. It is. And so I, I've said it before, but I'm on the border of uh, Philly and New York sports talk radio, a very, very particular pain to willingly induce on oneself on a regular basis. Yeah. And that's that's the common complaint about Stan. Well, he's never in the lineup. And it's like, well, all right. But like when it he actually- is, he's amazing. And like Chapman, same thing. Um, he's 6'4", 218 is what he's listed at. He's Chapman's kind of interesting from a, from a physical baseball standpoint because like you're saying, these guys in the minors are going to keep doing this. They're going to keep throwing harder and harder. That's how they're training. Uh, a lot of what we're really talking about here on a more granular level, level with, a, with a baseball uh, freak level, somebody enjoying this kind of data, is just the ability to measure, right? We've, we've been able to measure these things so long. And the one thing that Chapman has going for him in this context is Velo has always played. Velo has always impressed. Correct. And so he's 33. He broke into the majors at 22. He's been doing this the whole time. He just threw 102.2 miles an hour over the weekend. Like to do that for that long is incredible. So it, it really does hone in on a couple of things here. 
there is a, a super tool aspect uh, with somebody like Madrigal. There is a uniqueness aspect with guys like Stanton and Chapman who play into it. Uh, there are maybe guys we underappreciate like Michael Brantley. Um, when we when we kind of round all of this out and we look at it from a whole baseball perspective, one guy who sticks out to me as being underappreciated for star level player, you go and you look at the the Fangraphs War leaderboard for the last five years, uh, so 2017 through 2021, and again obviously the, the calendar caveats right with not quite full seasons all the way through just yet. Uh, but the top two, you could probably guess, Trout, Betts. Do you have any idea who three is off the top of your head? What's the leaderboard again? Just the Fangraphs war leaderboard uh, for position players since 2017. Oh, man, I wish you gave this question ahead of time so I could have thought of it. Okay, so <laughs> this is interesting. I'll, I'll try to talk to my thought process. So you have to think of someone who's played a lot of games because that is a cumulative stat. Um, position player war... Oh man, I'm uh, no, I'm not gonna. I was gonna say this is a hilarious answer. I know it's wrong, but can we can, can you give me some slack on a Drelton Simmons? Because I know he's played <laughs> such insane defensive totals, and he's played so many games that I feel like his baseline at war would be really high. But I know it's not him. Um, uh, he is not on. I'll the... go. I'll go Miguel Cabrera, but I, I think I'm wrong. It's not Cabrera. Uh, Cabrera is probably on a closer of a Pujols. Like uh, is he bad to tear like that Yeah. Okay. Uh, Simmons is not in the top 30, but uh, <laughs> TC, if you listen to this, you're probably stoked. TC loves Andrelton Simmons. Love. He thought that move was great for the Twins. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Rendon. Oh, it's a good one. That's a right? really good one. Yeah, super underappreciated player. Super underappreciated because he was in Washington where like that team was kind of cobbled together with stars. And like if, if you're playing fantasy and you, you go with the stars and scrubs mentality, like that's the Washington Nationals every year. Uh, yep. And now he's out in LA where maybe this is, East Coast bias, and as somebody in the Midwest, you can correct me, uh, but he just doesn't get the, the the type of play in terms of media, in terms of uh, appreciation for what he does. Yeah, it's crazy. Three, six, four seasons, six plus four seasons, back to back to back from 2017 to 2019. That is really, really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah <laughs> it's his, incredible. His walk rate is barely a percentage point below his K rate. Uh, his ISO is like at least... I want to say 60 to 70 points above league average. So he's driving the ball better than pretty much everybody except Betts and Trout. Yeah. Uh, actually better than Betts by a few points. Uh, Jose Ramirez, Alex Bregman, Christian Yelich, Francisco Lindor, Arenado, Judge, Bogarts round out the top 10. But by the time you get to them, the gap is, it's like at least six wins off of the top mm -hmm. two. And Rendon is at 23.2 wins worth of value by the Fangraphs war measure in the last five years. And this is kind of what I'm curious about because uh, so we're talking about our own biases, our own fandoms growing up and what we have kind of uh, been drawn to and pulled to. I don't know if we remember Anthony Rendon when he retires as a top three player in baseball. It's a great question. And I almost look at some of the trends here in terms of the defense being peaking in 2017 and then deteriorating each of the next three seasons i'll jump to contact rate and a couple other things which are just general indicators of like what is he doing to progress contact rate has now it's been pretty good swinging strike rates been pretty is that slightly deteriorating yeah see he's really interesting because like i wonder whether he's a guy who if he has some like late 
career resurgence, you know, whether we start to put him in that area of greatness. Cause like at that point he'll potentially be above 50 war. Let's say if we give him a couple, two, three, four war through his next three years, which bring him to like 34 years old, yeah. he'd be in that 50 window, which starts to get into like some hall of famers are in that window. Maybe not the hall of fame third baseman. Maybe that standard's a little bit different. I'd have to maybe check with JJ after or something like that. I don't exactly know the hall of fame stuff off the top of my head, but yeah, like Rendon's a tough one. Cause it seems like maybe there's a little bit of like deterioration in the present year. And obviously that could be injury based, but like 16% walk rate last year was crazy in a small sample. 418 OBP was the highest of his career. Like, well, and what's, ugh, it's tough. It's yeah, tough. It's really tough. Cause you mentioned his back to back to back six plus win seasons. He didn't play more than 147 games in any of those. So for as much as war is, is an accumulation stat, he didn't True. have as much opportunity to accumulate as somebody who's playing every day, who does, who like um, Marcus Semien, what, a couple years ago, right? He, incredible year, but he played, I think, like 160 games or something, and he yeah. needed every one of them to squeeze every bit out for that production. Rendon has not needed that repeatedly. He was still worth th- almost three wins last year in the abbreviated season. Uh, he is only going to be 31 for most of this year, and he does seem to have a contact profile that could age well. If he holds up with his ability to drive the ball, I guess maybe the biggest question then could be health. And that's where we get into this conversation of uh, unique skill or uh, unprecedented longevity. How often, like we don't see many guys who are entering their 30s continually play 135, 145 games who are effective when they miss those games because of injury, right? So. I wonder how he kind of continues to evolve as a player if he can maintain this kind of production. Yeah, and it's like even if he's only playing 120 a year, you know what I mean? Like he probably could still post four war in that yeah. window, which would be very good, you know? And this gets into a whole another layer of like what we were talking about. Just workload management as a whole, obviously been a hot topic in other sports, but becoming, I think, a relatively hot topic in the present sport. I think we're seeing oh, with yeah. the Rays a little bit. And oh, I understand yeah. it's it's a matchup-based thing to some extent. But I also think that the layer on top of that matchup-based thing has to do with workload management. Like, we've seen players like Rosarena and Meadows sitting more often this year. And I, that could be matchup-based. They could have internal data saying that matchup's off. But I've watched a lot of Rays games this year, oddly enough. I'm not sure why. But they... Like these guys sit a little more frequently, like every fourth, fourth or fifth or sixth day. We saw this really early on with the Dodgers as well. Corey Seager, Justin Turner, I believe, getting a couple of days off intermittently in a given week. Like it gets back to what we're saying. Like all these numbers are not going to look as good as they did in the past. Like right. the counting stats aren't going to be there. There's going to be so few guys that are probably playing above 145 games. Let's not even talk about like the 150 or 60 threshold, you know? Like, I understand that that's like, again, this goes back to what I think is initially, there's multiple paths towards greatness. And I, I totally appreciate and understand like that focused, narrow vision of like, wow, he was incredible for a short period of time. Like I I call it the Kofax to some extent. Um, And then like, there's other ways to get to it. Right. And it's like, I think this is why to some extent Pujols transcends, as we mentioned, which I, I think is just the idea of getting beyond the sphere of the baseball nerds to some extent, which I don't think Magical will ever do. I, you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, it's tough. It is really hard to be great. And it's like, it as is. much as we like think of maybe these guys being great, like the reality is like, they're very good. You know, that old joke, the hall of very good. Like, <laughs> a lot of these guys are just very good. And there's a lot of very good players or a lot of players with very good individual tools in some respect or another, but 
I don't know if Rendon's ever going to be considered great, even if he has a late career resurgence. Even like, if he's already been not, great. Exactly. We're not appreciating him in his peak. Like his peak is probably now. Like, yeah. excuse me, it probably already happened. No offense to him. But like, what's that? 1920 war in three years? That's a peak. Yeah. That's a pretty good peak. There are probably Hall of Famers who did not eclipse six war in back-to-back season. Yeah, there, there probably are, especially with some how some guys got voted in for so long before we knew how to quantify or exactly. evaluate so many skills. And, you know, all of this is really making me think if we already have a hard time evaluating or appreciating or witnessing greatness as it happens and the game continues to change and the Hall of Fame will probably lag even behind all of this as as you and I and, and people like us try to do it because I don't see them adjusting their plaques and saying he only played 145 games, but believe us, they were really good. <laughs> Are we good at recognizing greatness as it happens or is this something that like we just, it takes so much effort to pause and, and see? Whew, that's a great question. I think, I almost think we're not good at it, but I almost think we're not good at it in the way that we sometimes maybe overreact to really good smaller samples. You know what I mean? Like, think of it in the direction of like, I'll, I'll lay out two cases. The present state of baseball with some of the top players in the game presently, and I'm going to section this off to, let's say, Tati, Sakunya, Soto are the three that come to mind for me who do not have long track records of playing experience are extremely good in small samples, like incredibly good, generationally good, like Soto and Ted Williams. You see that comp split screen all the time. Sure. You know what I mean? It's a yeah, yeah. product. Like, I almost wonder whether it's harder for us to appreciate greatness because when we think it's like 2% of the way there, if it jumps over that 1% where we're like, this has a greater chance of being great, we call it out immediately and are like, look at this, incredible. And like, I don't see a problem with that personally. Like, I love the fact that we were like, we've, we're anointing these three players as like the future because I believe they are the future and I believe they will be great. But like, there's probably a decent chance that one of them does not end up being great. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. we're, we're in a situation where like we have three of the greatest players of all time sitting right in front of us. If, if each of these projections around these three players is accurate, we're looking at three of the most incredible players playing yeah. simultaneously, debuting within a year and a half of each other. I could be wrong on that. Maybe less than that. Maybe more than that in that window, three of the, like we're looking at three 80% Mike Trout players. Let's say because Mike Trout's like a God. And I don't right. even know if these guys are going to send to this, but like imagine three 80% Mike Trout's debuting in a year of each other. Like that's crazy. So it's like, we can look at the angle of like one of these guys is not actually going to be great. Or we're, we're in a situation where like, we're going to be completely like, a bucket of waters of greatness is going to be thrown at us where we're going to be like, holy <laughs> When we look back in a couple of years, we're going to be like, did we appreciate that we have these three players in the league at once, debuting at once at like when maybe, maybe we look back in five years and go the peak of a player is no longer 27, 20, yeah. now it's 24, 25. Yeah. And like, we just didn't realize that they peaked that early. You know, so, it's just like, there's so many layers there for me. We're, the, there really are. And so one thing I want to hit on, you're, you're even talking about, um, it was funny you phrased it as a bucket of water of greatness being thrown like at us. Shocking, and, you know, a shocking cold water. It's yeah, like, and that's interesting because that analogy usually gets used to like shock somebody to cool them off about something. But now it's like, which which makes me think this is so. It's kind of paradoxical. Now we're now we're getting into like head trip stuff. And, and uh, <laughs> excuse me while everybody tunes out and I drone on for a second here. But it's kind of like we don't. I, I wonder if we're not very good at appreciating it as it happens. Uh, even if we're mm. like, even if we say Tatis Acuna, 
Soto are incredible. 80% of Mike Trout, like, holy crap, we need to take a step back and realize how good that really is. I don't know that we really know what that means beyond just saying that, right? Because we we kind of encapsulate all of that into how good Mike Trout is and has been and how he's aged and how he's kind of uh, approached something new every year and just gotten better at it because he just decided to. I don't know that we can really process quite what it means. And I think of this, my my touchstone for this is Roy Halladay, best pitcher in baseball in 2011. Uh, if, if we want to think of it in just crude, easy to f- process terms, 8.7 FR. The only guy as good as, as that season in the five years leading up to his 2011, Zach Grinke in 2009, same, same exact uh, production, and Clayton Kershaw in 2015, like a, like a tenth of a war below it. And everybody knew he was the best pitcher in baseball that year. But I don't know that we knew quite what that meant because he made it look so easy. Tatis, Acuna, Soto, they have fun when they're doing it. And I think that could be a huge deal in terms of people realizing their greatness. But they make it look so easy. When when Tatis against the Dodgers a couple weeks ago on prime time took Trevor Bauer out opposite field, it was the most casual looking swing ever, right? And that's it's, this is the idea that uh, elite players are always elite. So it's really hard to like you. You mentioned you're, you're you've been kind of in the prospect circuit before. I actually want to take a second to. I, I believe one of the first people I heard say Soto over Robles was you. Uh, mm, so yeah. I, I remember I that, remember and just as a fun note for everybody. Um, but it's almost like you need to watch minor leaguers to calibrate yourself. This is um, something that two things as we talk about kind of how to evaluate guys, especially like Madrigal, Eric Longenhagen at Fangrass places a lot of value on guys who will produce the same for a long time. That's a really valuable trait for an organizational piece. Uh, but he also says that, you know, if you watch different levels, you'll understand just how good these guys are. You go and watch an A-ball game nearby, which might be tough for some of you with how the minors have been reduced, but you go and watch one and then you go and watch a major league game. And of course the 27th man in a doubleheader roster is like, leaps and bounds above the third base or guy who might not get out of a ball and who's in there his third year there who just doesn't have it. And yet he's leaps and bounds better than the indie league guy who's leaps and bounds better than the D three college guy who's better than the high school players, better than me who stopped playing in the fourth grade or something, right? Like it's really hard to calibrate greatness. And I think I, I wonder if we'd be better at it. If baseball made a concerted effort to be better at promoting baseball at every level it's a great point and I, I quickly did some googling and pulled up something here that jumped to mind when you were talking about this and the, it's the case of andrew vaughn who through the minor leagues has been an incredible a plate approach player a player who i was allotted who everyone expected at the age of like 21 to pop into the major leagues and hit extremely well and not post like his stats in the in cal his 2019 season which was his junior season he walked 25% of the time and struck out 14% of the time. Those are walk rate first, 25% walk rate to a 14% strikeout rate. Yeah. And it was comparable the prior season, 17% walk rate to 7% strikeout rate. Okay. He comes to the major leagues. He played in 2019. He got through rookie ball, a ball and high a, they jump him in 2020, play a bunch of site does a debut. He debuts in 2021. He is currently striking out at 24% and walking at 10%. That flip. From D1, elite-level D1 baseball to the major leagues, 
and he's completely on his head to the point. And like, he's actually been an okay player. Like people think he's had a terrible start. The kid's yeah. 23 years old. He's, he's a positive war player. He's actually playing okay defense, which is shocking in the outfield, which I've stunned at. Yeah. Um, but like, that's a great example of like how hard it is. And I think this is a great example too on the scouting side, because you hear a ton of the time, a lot of the scouts I've talked to, one of the biggest things to do as a scout at a young age, and this is really hard to do is the other part of this generally, because if you're in a given area, you're, you're seeing a certain level of baseball. I generally growing up in Connecticut, saw a bunch of double a baseball. That was the rock cats in New Britain. And then eventually the Hartford yard gets up in Hartford. You see double a baseball, so you calibrate your brain to double a baseball. And then yeah. when you go watch low a, I remember one time I went out to Norwich, which was a little bit far from where I'm from. That's a short season, a ball team that I believe is now an indie ball team or whatever the major league is. I don't remember what level they are right now. They're no longer a major league affiliate. I went out there and saw them and I was like, holy moly. You know I mean? <laughs> it's like, it's different. That looks like, that looks like D2 baseball, unfortunately, yeah. you know? And it's like, as a scout, you need to see other levels. Cause like, if you're staring at one level the whole time, like you end up calibrating everything to that level. And you end up thinking that a tool is plus for that level. And like when in reality, that doesn't matter to the organization. What matters to the organization is what it's going to be at the major league level. So like if you see a 60 slider in double A, that might be a 45 slider in the major leagues, which means it's below average, 50 being the average, 60 being one standard deviation above major league average, 40 being one standard deviation below. Like that is really hard to do. Like to calibrate between levels is really hard. And I, when I came out to the Midwest, started seeing a bunch of A-ball, I had to recalibrate for A-ball. And like, I'm nowhere near as seasoned as a variety of other scouts, but like, that is really hard to do. It's really, really difficult. And like, I totally agree in terms of the promotion of different levels to truly understand how great a player is. And I just think it even, like this might even be a case for saying why Soto and Acuna and all these other players are as good as they are. Because I, I would imagine, and I could be wrong here, their samples in the minor leagues are not high. They don't have a ton of accumulated experience. I think Soto in particular, I remember him yeah being a little bit injured and then kind of popping up through the major leagues and everyone being like, Ooh, he could be great. And he's incredible. <laughs> but like his sample in the minor leagues is not big, you know? And it's like, it almost makes me like, it, it just like boggles my mind that like this guy's this good. And he had this small of a sample in the minor leagues. When you look at a player like Andrew Vaughn, who everyone expects to be really good and shoots up. And then all of a sudden it's like below major league average, unfortunately. But like, again, 23 is going to improve. Like I still have a super high grade on Vaughn. I don't think anyone's adjusting their grades on Vaughn, no. but like, back to the cold water this is like a shock you know what i mean it's like man we were pretty confident that he had like a present like fingers had a present 55 hit tool which means it's like between one standard deviation and the major league average he's better like, than your average hitter who's already better correct. than a ton of players and like i think maybe he's borne that out i think maybe that grade was a little bit high he's still obp 350 super small sample here but like hit tool generally goes back to like quality contact and some things as opposed to plate approach although that is the dynamic of it 260 hitter you know, 10% walk rate's pretty good. He's pretty good. I think it's more like major league average presently though, right? And it's like, we were pretty confident Andrew Ball was going to be like the best contact hitter we've seen, you know? And it's like that calibration between levels, I just think is fascinating. There's so many, so many baseball, so layered. It's just, it's, it's one of the reasons why I love the sport so much. It's just, it's so difficult to contextualize sometimes. It is. And that's why, like, you know, you mentioned a little bit ago, like you really wanted to come into this saying, I don't, not saying, I don't know. But I feel like that's a really valuable thing to say. One, just presenting kind of that curiosity. And two, saying like, we, we don't know. It's so hard to know. And the things we do know are really kind of just like tip of the iceberg type stuff. We don't, 
and we don't come at this with a macro approach. We don't come at this with calibrating between levels, let alone between prospects, let alone mm. prospects who are from different areas, like kids who grow up in the Dominican as opposed to a college kid like yeah. Vaughn who comes through a D1 program that's supposed to prepare him for the majors. And he's not pl- he's not a Juan Soto type player. I mean, maybe he could be. Mm-hmm. But he does not come in and have that immediate impact after 100 minor league games like Soto did, who had, what was it? like? It, it was comical. It was, it was a big thing when he came up that he had eight games in double A and then he was a major leaguer. Go. And he's mm-hmm. been a major leaguer. Unquestionable major league pl- player, star. Immediately. I remember that first game. It went oppo. Oppo on a ball. I think it was like a fastball up or something like that. I was just watching. I was just like, what on earth was that? Yeah, well, and that, so that's the I mean? thing. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. So I've got nine years on Soto and I'm like, man, <laughs> he comes up and, and goes right. oppo as in his first series as a major leaguer. I think it was his first start. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I'll, I got to <laughs> find something to do. Uh, yeah. And that's why it's so frustrating too, because even as people who watch the game, who inherently I think baseball begs its viewers to evaluate, right? Like you can't watch a game and not evaluate. You can't watch a game and, and like Joe Girardi does a double switch and, People are criticizing him for taking Gene Segura out of the lineup. It's a hot hitter, right? Like everybody's evaluating it. That's what fans do so much, I think. And that makes it really tough too, because when you evaluate, you evaluate based on your experiences and your experiences are direct and have implicit biases in them that we don't take the time to step away from and calibrate. And that's why I'm kind of curious. Are we just not that good at appreciating greatness on on a large scale? Now I'm really thinking in terms of just big picture type stuff, really trying to evaluate or, or just appreciate, maybe not evaluate. Maybe that's the key is just to tune out and tune that part of our brain down and just like, let it sink in. You're talking about scouts needing to see players at various levels. And I think that's kind of what they do, right? Like that's the argument. The people, we talk about this a lot too on the pod is that there's a people aspect to everything that every problem is a people problem that scouts really solve a lot of this when they have a trained eye that calibrates between different levels that says, Oh yeah, he's probably a, he looks great now, but he could be a double A org guy in two years. You know, mm-hmm. don't don't sweat him too much. Um, and scouts are wrong too. It's it's yeah. a huge part of it, right? Like, I, I, just wrong. It's the reality of it is that you're incorrect. Like, if you had a perfect track record, you'd be invaluable. You know, it's right. like this. I'm sure the scout who signed Mike Trout is not this is has a bunch of other failures or guys that he thought would maybe be as not as good, but like let's say somewhere in that realm of like greatness. Like this guy's a really yeah. good player. I think he's gonna be a really good player. He isn't. So like that failure rate is huge. And I think that to some extent it doesn't drop credibility, but like it, it like kind of makes us go, okay, like, sure. Yeah. He's going to be great. You know what I mean? But like, is he, is he actually, (laughs) it's like going to be major league great tough. It's so hard, man. It's just, I I think there's something for me, the, the, the point is, I don't, I don't think we're that good at it. And I think, I think it is a product of like us potentially overreacting to some extent. And I, I'm okay with that because, like, I do think there is some value in small samples. And I, I love the contracted greatness of, like, a Matt Harvey or something like that, where oh, it's, like, yeah. incredible a for example. a short period of time, but, like, is not good now. And I, I don't know. I'd be stunned if he has a really, really career resurgence, you know? But, like, it's, it's hard. It's, like, it makes me appreciate the longevity to some extent, which, I, again, this is going back to Bulls. This is why he is great. I think it's because of the combination of the two. And I understand in the last four years that he hasn't been, he hasn't been good at all. He's been negative player poor. But, like, with that in mind, the context of his career is still incredible. You know, and you mentioned that off the top of the show. He's still, like, 40% better than league average yeah. in terms of weight runs created. Yeah, just... and that that is what's incredible. And I think maybe what you're, what you're saying there hints at that, 
longevity plus moments really does provide us with a scale kind of for greatness. Maybe scale isn't the right word for baseball in particular because we've got 20 to 80 scale, all that. But we have a context for it because you mentioned Pujols just now, so good for so long, 15 years, and he gave us moments. You mentioned what was a game three of the 2011 World Series where he hit the three homers. And so we have these moments attached to our brains, and then we have the pages like now to, to look up what he's done for so long. And that seems to be such a valuable key. What's, what's been really valuable for me for, as a takeaway for this conversation is that we just don't know and that maybe we could get better at recalibrating or witnessing greatness as it happens because it, it takes time and we're not good at taking time for things, right? That, that's, that's, part of, that's a huge part of the pace of play conversation. So as a final note, to top off this part of our discussion here, Lance, any final thoughts, any big takeaways that you've had in the last however many minutes or one final thing you wanted to bring up yeah. about what it is to witness greatness in baseball now and in the past and the future? I think this conversation in particular is making me think of two pitchers that I have Fangraphs pits pulled up for right now, which we don't have to really get into. We can end this conversation, but I'll leave, I'll leave people with this thought of Max Scherzer and Justin Verland, who are two pitchers who are above 60 war each. They both are pitching into their mid thirties and succeeding arguably as good as they were in their peak age Verlander and Scherzer. I believe that holds up for both of them. Um, Is it, is there something even greater about a player when they transcend through large shifts in baseball, which I think that Scherzer and Verlander fall into this category to some extent, because they were great in early 2010s, which from my understanding, very few teams at that point had any idea what to do with a concept called pitch design or anything like that. Yeah. Like, I really don't think teams had, like, I think that for the most part, even some organizations like the Dodgers had that information maybe in the mid to, let's say like 2014, but still had no idea what to do with it. And they were four years ahead of other teams presently. But the fact that these two pitchers, are in their late 30s. Verlander's coming back from Tommy John. I saw a quote the other day that he expects that uh, there's a chance he returns before the end of the season or something like that, but everything (laughs) has to be absolutely perfect. The guy's 38. Like, if he can do this through, like, large shifts in baseball, and legitimately, if you look at that statistics for him, it doesn't look like there was a shift in baseball. Like, that's incredible to me. And I I think that Verlander and Scherzer are both great and transcend. And I think one of the reasons they do this is because of this kind of jumping through time periods of massive evolution in the game and still succeeding as if nothing has happened. Yeah, that's a great that's point because because a lot of the things that were successful between 2005 and 2010, you just don't see those teams or those players anymore. You no, can't. Yeah. They, they don't exist. I, I've, ta- I've brought it up. You don't, Ryan Howard does not exist in today's major leagues. Nope. He's like a bench guy because you, ju- you just have the strategy. You know how to get him out. Yeah, Matt <laughs> Adams. Yeah. Um, Scherzer is a great example. That's another TC favorite uh, that we, we've brought him up before. Historically, guys, I know off the top of my head, you look at players playing through their age, 36 to 37 seasons, they do not have a K-minus walk rate that he does. He's like 17% above average so far this year. It does not look like he's slowing down at all, no matter how much is off his fastball. His whole repertoire seems to match his personality, which is just a fun thing too. And like, he's a great example. And maybe that's a great point to leave it at, is that the guys who are great through different times of baseball as we witness the game changing so much so quickly are really the guys we might want to pay attention to the sooner we recognize them. Yep. Uh, so that's, that's a great final thought. Yeah. 
and as I, I didn't mean to pat myself on the back because you gave a, a compliment. I just thought like, yeah, you know, maybe we should consider that. Yeah, no, I guess I get you. <laughs> uh, so that, that brings us to this week in baseball. We can hit on things uh, quickly. I'll bring these up to you. Lance, you just give me a one-off thought. Uh, the Mets are, quote, optimistic that Jacob deGrom won't miss extended time. How do you feel about the Mets feeling optimistic about the likes of Jacob deGrom? I could go on this for ages. I, have a, I grew up in the, <laughs> in the Northeast. I have a bunch of Met, Met friend fans. Met fan friends. That's a tongue twister. Um, workload management will be my, my word on this one. Uh, I think to some extent you're seeing a team actually act a little bit proactively. I understand that they're optimistic and the Mets do not uh, end up in the same ses- sentence. But um, this is actually a move that makes sense for them with some off days coming up, I believe. Uh, it allows him to not pitch, I think, for around probably like 11 or 12 days to really get yeah. this issue figured out. But I also think it's a workload management thing. I think a lot of teams are realizing that this is kind of the way to go and that depth's super important. The Mets, unfortunately, don't have a lot of depth, which I think is going to hurt them when he's out. But um, yeah, workload management. Yeah, they, they have a lot of major league pitchers, but not guys who will come close to... Re- fortunately, not you know. good major league pitchers. <laughs> <laughs> Lucchese and Yamamoto are not good, unfortunately. I apologize, Mets fans. <laughs> They're, they're pitchers. They're major league pitchers. Yeah. Better than I will ever they're be. really good in that in that respect, but they are not coming they're not in and good. making big differences for the Mets <laughs> exactly. in 2021. Uh, Jordan Hicks is out at least six weeks with inflammation in his pitching elbow. Uh, I see at least, at least attached to a guy like this who's already had injury history. Mm-hmm. Um, on a scale of like one to queasy, where do you land hearing this news with Jordan Hicks? Yeah, pretty queasy. I, I'll push in the direction of almost wondering and i know we're not ever gonna get this information but this is kind of where my head goes in something like this is like i'd love to know what was different about his tommy john process than potentially other pitchers um mm. whether they were using modus whether, whether they were using a lot of the tools presently available to monitor something like this um i assume they were i'm, I'm assuming they are I'm being optimistic in that respect but like could be just a body thing with him um i don't exactly know but yeah i i understand that the, the prevailing consensus here is going to be like oh of course he's the, the idea of like of course he's going to break down he throws 102 with sink you know what i mean but yeah i just that's such a it's such a blanket statement that i i just don't like when people say that at all and i know a lot of other people don't as well but interesting it's just tough it's really tough to see i love that kid it is tough and it, it does make me pretty queasy i think it's a good phrase for it uh as far as the tech they use like the modus sleeve i'd be con- concerned i guess I, I know the cardinals in the past have been referred to i think it was Eno saris who referred to them as an eyewash org when it comes to using mm. new tech which can be exactly kind of, why i brought that up yep. yeah uh f- frustrating to hear for for the a talent like jordan hicks uh but in terms of something positive jazz chisholm jorge alfaro luke void all set to return soon i think this is maybe a two-horse race but i'm going to ask you this anyway who's more important to their club Oh, uh, it's, it's just jazz for sure. Uh, there's no other dynamic offensive player on that Marlins team. There's probably six dynamic offensive players on the Yankees team, in my opinion. Um, jazz is incredible. Uh, I, I want to pull something up quickly here, but he's a player who I saw the Midwest league home run derby in Lansing, Michigan, alongside a variety of other players. And I thought there was way too much noise in his swing for it to ever work. And I'm very wrong, but for a player to ascend to the major leagues and keep his strikeout rate constant from the minor league numbers is shocking. Usually you see the progression of a player go from striking out. He struck out 34% of the time in double a with Arizona in 2019, any projection system. You look at that tries to look at minor league data, which is again, it's all over the place. Maybe it's 20% accurate, but yeah. it's still some kind of baseline. The fact that he's striking out 31% of the time in major leagues, with the peripherals that back that up to stay around the thirties is incredible. 
especially for the defense he plays and the dynamic nature he brings to the game. I'm, jazz is an incredible trade. I understand we all hated that initially and thought that it was stupid, but like, I like Gallon too, but I think I like Jazz more than Gallon. Like, Marlins might actually win this trade. There's a fun I don't factor. Know. Right. I, there, I don't know about this. Like Gallon's really fun and really good, but I jazz, man, I'd take a shortstop. I feel like I want jazz over Gallon right now. If you ask me, I'd be interested to see what I'm going to say. You know, it's, we, we could have a whole conversation on that, but it's really interesting with how the Marlins develop arms too. Like they're not hurting for high quality starters and the, the impact mm-hmm. that's they've sought have been a toolsy loud type like jazz who they pin out. That's going to be incredible. Uh, if you have the, the time, take a few minutes. I, I believe uh, Shakia Taylor wrote up a great piece on jazz uh, for baseball prospectus, just about what he means in terms of entertainment value and how that could benefit baseball. Um, yeah. It also referenced that the title is a, a tribe called quest song, which is you're starting from fun from the time you open the page <laughs> to the last <laughs> word. So um, a final note here, the Chicago Cubs, uh, you're very familiar with them at this point. Mm-hmm. They are playing 500 ball to this point. They are pretty banged up. We're waiting on news for Jake Marisnik and uh, Jason Hayward with recent injuries from over the weekend. What do you make of, like, can, can the Cubs survive a long-term absence here with, with major names, Lance, and, and compete in a division in which they are, what, three and a half games back already of the Cardinals? Yeah, it's, it's really funny. I was actually just having a conversation before we hopped on here with a scout about this idea that um, – Preseason, we had a huge focus as an industry, I, I believe personally, on what do you do with the total amount of innings that you have to combat this year? Oh, yeah. You know, you look at it in the inning standpoint of like we have these pitchers. The Cubs took a very odd approach to it, signing a bunch of contact-based pitchers with probably pitches they thought they could maybe tweak. And Trevor Williams, Zach Davies, you know, contact-based sinker guys. You know, not the like Williams throws from a low slot. It's not great vertical movement, but I think it works a little better in the top zone because of that slot, which gets into a whole vertical approach angle idea. We'll leave that out of this, but they signed a variety of weird pitchers. They kind of hodgepodge together a staff and had Kyle Hendricks at the head of it, who has not pitched well and hilarious game the other day where he gave up like four runs on no ball that was hit over 85. So like, he's going to come around. He'll be fine. But yeah, they're, they're an odd team, but uh, getting back to what I was saying, like we had such a focus on the pitching and the innings and that innings total innings, total innings total. And like, I don't know how many stories I read about like the ABs total. You know, Mm. like we never looked at it from like the hitter perspective of like, what happens if you lose two outfielders? What happens if you're the White Sox and you lose Luis Robert? What are you doing with your outfield? Like that question, I don't think was posed too much. And I almost feel like that was as probable as some of the pitcher injuries. And I could be wrong. I'm not exactly sure if hitter injuries are up more than pitcher injuries are up. Maybe they're up in tandem. I would bet they're up in tandem overall. Maybe it's too small sample to tell right now. Probably is. But yeah, I, I don't think we really looked at like the depth offensively of major league organizations and like another way is like we might have to recalibrate that depth with how like x stats like i just saw something from tom tango earlier this morning about how like x stats expected statistics are recalibrating based on like kind of what is the league average based on the yeah. run environment yep. and like we may like the marisnics of the world who are like 230 hitters with like great defense like those guys might actually be substantially more valuable than we thought and I don't exactly know whether there is a model organization that stacked up these depth offensive players. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I feel like the Cubs actually did an okay job of it with Mariznick and Duffy and some of these other guys. But yeah. I wonder if there's a team that was looking at this not from the pitching standpoint, knowing like everyone acknowledged that it's going to be difficult to cover all these innings with pitchers if you want to cap 
how much you're adding to the prior total from 2020. But like, I don't think we really looked at this from an AB perspective of like, here's a pool of ABs we have yeah. to cover. And are we comfortable with Luke, Ray, uh, Luke Rayleigh and Matt Beattie hitting, you know, taking 50 plate appearances in 10 days? You know, like that stuff was not talked about enough. And I think we're running into a lot of those issues now. That's really interesting, especially uh, the Dodgers injuries are fascinating because they have been hit so hard and we they were one of those like three teams we thought was built for depth. And you look at all the teams that were really built for depth, even the Padres had great depth this offseason. Preller did a yeah. ton to prevent it's running into point. injury trouble. And yet here they are. Those teams are both dealing with it. A lot of teams are dealing with it. The Cubs are one of them. Even outside of the a development machine like the Rays, that that that's just what they do in terms of dev. But they didn't necessarily add to think of how to split up those ABs in this context. Yep. And that's a really interesting thing too that we might, like you're saying, have to recalibrate when it comes to evaluating what what a good hitter is, what they look like, and how often they'll have to play in 2021. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to really know until after the fact. It'll be a really fun kind of retrospective exercise, I think, to look back 2022, 2023, try to process what exactly baseball was and, and, and what it was to get through a season. Uh, so that brings us to the PL piece of the week. Uh, James Shiano's aggressive assignments to take note of just goes through some really, like what the title says, aggressive assignments for minor league players. Minor league baseball started back up. Lance, you said it, it would be great to calibrate our eyes. Uh, ultimately, uh, names you're familiar with some names you might not be in that piece uh, for anybody listening but minor league baseball tv milb tv is like 20 bucks for the year so Cheers. you're looking you're looking to calibrate your eyes to different levels and seeing what greatness is maybe and, and how that translates uh maybe consider that consider james's piece you'll have a few names to at least keep uh, an eye on that brings us lance to uh, one, thanking you for all your time and, and stepping in admirably here with, uh, with TC. Uh, gone for the week, we'll be back. But where can we find you online and otherwise? Yeah, Twitter at Lance B-R-O-Z, first four letters of my last name. Uh, I've also kind of started a little bit of like a YouTube kick, finding a very interesting medium. Uh, I'm a bit of a, like a media nerd in general, I would say. And I, I've consumed YouTube content for a while, but never really thought to put it out there on my own. And I've made like five or six videos kind of going in depth on random things. I just, I kind of feel like that's a platform that baseball needs to push to a little bit more. Um, so I'm doing my best to kind of combine some of the video editing talents I have from working with Marquee and stuff to also trying to do a little more just speaking myself and on air and trying to sort through ideas. So I just put one out on Luis Patino and his slider change, um, which is something that kind of hopped into mind when I was watching him in his first outing with Tampa. Talked about kind of the Rays um, and what they do with pitchers and like why we might perceive a pitch one way when in reality, another or we might perceive it another way. So YouTube, Google, my name, Lance, B R O Z D O W S K I. I'm sure if you just search Luis Patino, it might pop up. I don't know how much confidence there is out there, but yeah, Twitter and YouTube are, are probably my two current ventures. Marquee sports network. Yeah. It's more of a local thing. You either get it or you don't, unfortunately, but some cool content there as well. Awesome. I'm, I'm going to advocate that everybody go and check out, uh, the, the, some of the, graphics and, and visuals that Lance yeah. has put together even the it, it circulated Thanks. last playoffs you might have seen it the the clock face with the Rays staff their pitching staff right yeah, and how they attack one. hitters um so definitely check out Lance you can find me at Tim Jackson says on Twitter uh you could find the pod at breaking pod pl if you want to email us at breaking pod pl at gmail.com uh, otherwise, if you could rate us five stars, leave a comment, follow Lance and uh, all the great stuff he's going to be doing. Uh, we'd all love you for it. It would, it would warm our hearts. And we, we're so thankful you guys tuned in this week. We can't wait to, to be back with you next week. We hope you all have the, the best week ever. We'll see you then, everybody.